Last Sunday, we were talking about the Easter message, the resurrection of Jesus. And one of the most important lessons in the, in the Bible comes from the lesson of the resurrection. The most important lesson, of course, comes from the message of the resurrection. The most important lesson in the Bible is that Jesus, the Son of God, has come to earth to live here a perfect life, to teach us God's will for us, to model it for us, but then to die for us that our sins could be forgiven, that we could be cleansed from our past sins. And then to rise again Sunday, the, day after he, the Sunday after he died, to rise again to demonstrate his power over death, to demonstrate the truth of his claims, and to demonstrate to you and me that his promise of our resurrection is real. That message is called the gospel. It is the most important message in the Bible. It is the good news, the message of Jesus all the way through his resurrection and the promise of your resurrection as well. But hiding inside the message of the gospel is a smaller but no less important message. And it is the message that God takes his people through times of weakness and trial to bring them to times of strength and blessing. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, everybody around him looks at him and they see him as a weak, powerless, helpless individual. But it's because of that moment that the power of the resurrection can demonstrate the strength of God at work in the lives of his followers. And so as a result, the second, probably not the second most, but one of the most important lessons in the Bible is this lesson that in my weakness, God's strength shows up. I want to share with you this morning a story of a time when I felt truly weak, completely helpless. Back in 2001, I had graduated from my graduate program in 2000. And in 2001, I got my first job as a lead pastor of a church up in Chicago. And I went there in uh, February, January, and we, we got up there. I started being like lead pastor for the first time. The church was 150 years old, and I at the time was only 26. And so it is a very big difference between the age of the church and a significant number of the people in the church and my own age. And so I'm getting there. I am green. I don't really know what I'm doing, but it was wonderful. The first nine months were like a honeymoon. Anything I wanted to do, I would say, hey, let's try this thing. And people around me were like, that sounds like a great idea. Let's run with that. Let's try that thing. And so there was just a whole lot of enthusiasm enthusiasm, a lot of excitement, nine months. The problem is in 2001, nine months later brings you to September, and on the 11th day of that month, some things happened that changed a lot of our lives. One of the things that happened on that particular day is that my wife's birthday began to be celebrated by lots of other people crying, because tragedy had hit in New York. And now I'm trying to figure out as a young pastor, what am I supposed to do? And a guy shows up in my office and he tells me he's trying to leave the Chicago mob 
and he needs a train ticket that will only cost a couple hundred dollars so that he can get out of town. I learned later he was lying, but I didn't learn it that day. And so I gave the guy some money, drove him to the train station, and wherever he went and whatever he did, I have no idea. But later that evening, the church had a thing, a prayer thing, and somehow in the midst of the prayer thing, I said the wrong thing to the child of one of the key leaders in the church. To this day, I don't remember what I said. I don't remember how it all happened or what the conversation was, but I know I said the wrong thing. I know I said the wrong thing because six months later, once the new year had started in 2002, this family was very upset and we didn't know why. We brought in an outside consultant, a conflict consultant, to come into the church to sit with me and this other family to try to figure out what went wrong. And we traced it all back to this statement that I had made on December 11th, that per, uh, September 11th, that particular day. We traced it all the way back then that that started a chain reaction of this family feeling like I was against them or something. And I was like, okay, I'm sorry. I tried to apologize. We tried to clear the air, but nothing would satisfy that family. And they eventually left. And you might think I would say that was my weak moment, but it wasn't. That moment didn't feel weak to me at all. Those moments didn't feel weak to me at all because throughout that whole process, there was a man in the church who stood by my side. He was my ally. He was right by my side through the whole thing. He was in the meetings with the conflict consultant. He was in the board meetings and the staff meetings and all the other things that were going on. And he was by my side sending me encouraging emails, having personal conversations with me. And so that whole process, because he was by my side, I felt strong. But it started a small chain reaction in the church. And about a couple months later, this guy who had been on my side sent me an email asking me a question, a, th a simple question, a theological question. What did I think the Bible taught about a particular topic? Now, you need to know something about me, and you also need to know something about the year 2002. Me, I'm the kind of person where if you ask me what I think about what the Bible teaches, I will definitely tell you. I love that. Ask me a question about what I think the Bible teaches, and I am all in it. That's my jam. That's the thing that I do, and I will, I will get into whatever kind of detail you want to get into. Plus, I'm extraordinarily honest when someone asks me what I think. I'm like, yeah, love that. I will tell you. Some of you have asked me questions that you thought might take like three sentences to answer, and I gave you a page and a half. So that's me. You know a little bit more about me. What you need to know about 2002 is that 2002, the year, was the time before anyone realized that email was a terrible way to communicate. And so back then, if you were honest in an email, you will get someone snapping at you in reply. Now, of course, it doesn't happen that way anymore because none of us use email that way. It now happens on Facebook, and Facebook is even worse. And so we've all learned the lesson, don't ever say anything important to any person ever, except possibly in person, and you couch it in a whole lot of hiding words. I think maybe that perhaps one of these days, th something that I might think I believe, but not actually be committed to, would be along the lines of what you believe, but just a little different. That's the way we approach things now. Well, I was dumb enough as a young pastor to not take any of that sort of advice that would come later in the years, and so I told this guy what I thought. And that launched a chain reaction of email communication between him and me 
that escalated to involving the whole church, that escalated to the point where his wife, who had been on the search committee that brought me to that church, and the other members of that search committee got together with a couple other people in the church to meet in secret to discuss whether or not I should stay at the church. I had been there for about 13 months, and they were talking about whether or not I should stay there for my 14th. And the guy who had been on my side through the previous thing was now on the other side in this thing. And I cannot tell you how much that made me feel weak. I tried everything. I tried apologies by email. I tried face-to-face conversations. I tried phone conversations. I tried to figure out what it was that I had said that was wrong because what I had said was just reading scripture and telling a person what I thought it said. And so I was trying to wrestle with, do I need to change something about myself? Do I need to change something about the circumstances around me? Can I fix this problem? And the answer was no. Absolutely helpless. Now, I know your situations are completely different, but I know this for a fact. You have been in a moment where you were helpless, where you were weak, where you were powerless, where you had no idea that anything you could do would solve this problem. And you tried your best to solve that problem. Maybe for you, it was a relationship. Maybe for you, it was an email. Maybe for you, it was a job. Maybe for you, it was a diagnosis. Maybe for you, it was a family member. I don't know what your situation has been, but I know all of us have been in that place of weakness. And what we are about to embark upon is a study through the book of 2 Corinthians. Because the book of 2 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote while he was at the bottom. Well, he was in a place of total weakness. Now, over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to give you some of the narrative background, but you need to know a little bit about 2 Corinthians as we get started. So we've just finished talking about 1 Corinthians, and I need to tell you the story of what happens between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We'll get more into detail next week and some following weeks, but I'll give you the quick rundown right now. So Paul finishes 1 Corinthians, which if you were with us during that series, you know that Paul's message in 1 Corinthians is rather harsh. He is straightforward. He's aggressive. He's like, you're sinning in this area. You got to do something about it. You're distant from each other in this area. You got to come back together, build some relationships. And oh, by the way, I'm in charge. Don't pay attention to anybody else. So Paul is aggressive in 1 Corinthians. It's definitely true. He's aggressive. Well, what happens is he sends that letter to Corinth by the hand of Timothy. Timothy takes it to Corinth. Timothy gets to Corinth. He gives them this letter that is somewhat harsh. And we know that the people responded poorly. They didn't like it. In fact, when Timothy got to Corinth, he found out there were even worse problems that were going on. We don't know. Maybe more people were now living in sexual immorality. Maybe more people were following the practices of idolatry. Maybe more people were opposed to Paul. We don't know what the problems were. Because then Timothy comes back to Paul with a report of how bad things are in Corinth. And Paul, whose original plan was to stay in Ephesus for a while and travel around the area and then eventually make his way back to Corinth, changes his plans. Things are so bad in Corinth, he has to go there face to face. So he makes a quick trip to Corinth to meet with them face to face. But when he shows up, it gets even worse. There's some sort of argument that happens there that is so bad, Paul runs away. He leaves again. And this time, he was planning on going back to them. He told them, I'm leaving for now, but I'll come back. But while he's away, he says, I can't go back. 
It's just too painful to go back. And if I go back, they will hurt and I will hurt and it's going to be a mess. I won't go back. And so he sends them a letter instead, a letter that we don't have, a letter that we would call his painful letter, a letter that we don't know. In fact, no one liked this letter, so no one kept this letter. Second Corinthians refers to this letter as the painful letter or the severe letter, but we don't have a copy of it because it was that harsh, that painful. And he writes it, and Timothy takes it back there, and he gives them the harsh letter, and some people choose to follow it, and some people don't. And Timothy comes back to Paul, and Paul says, oh, I don't know what to do. So 2 Corinthians is Paul's final letter to them. He knows that he is on a journey where he is going to make his way through the churches he has done before. He's going to raise some money. He's going to take that money to Jerusalem. He's pretty sure the people in Jerusalem are either going to kill him there or capture him. If they capture him, he's going to appeal to Caesar. They will take him to Rome. And in Rome, he will have a short ministry there while he's arrested, but he thinks he's probably eventually going to die. And so this letter to the church in Corinth is his last effort, where Paul is at his absolute rock bottom in his relationship with this church. And he says, okay, I'm just going to lay it out for you. And he'll make one final visit to them, and that'll be it. So he sends this letter on ahead. In fact, the ancient world had very specific letter-writing structures. You've been there. You went to elementary school and high school where you learned how to write a letter, and there's a particular form you're supposed to follow in each one of these different kinds of letters. Well, the ancient world also had a specific set of letters that they would follow, a set of forms. And Paul's letter that we call 2 Corinthians, this other letter, not the severe letter, but this letter that he writes at the end, the letter we call 2 Corinthians follows the form of a person who is writing to a courtroom to defend themselves. It's a legal form of letter writing that you would deliver as a lawyer to the judge on behalf of your client. Or you as the person defending yourself would deliver to the judge to defend yourself. Second Corinthians follows that pattern. It is Paul's last effort at defeating the problems in Corinth and defending himself. And so as a result, we read 2 Corinthians with two layers of meaning. I'm going to give them both to you. The first layer of meaning is that Paul is defending himself while also teaching them. Paul never writes anything without teaching people. And so he is defending himself, but he's also trying to teach them. Next, the second layer of meaning is that Paul is at his lowest point. So we, reading the letter, get to learn how to deal with weaknesses. We get to learn how to deal with hardships. Can you guys switch the slides a little bit? Paul is defending himself while teaching them. And then the next one after that is Paul's handling weakness. There you go. So we get to see how Paul is handling his own weakness by reading between the lines just a little bit. In fact, let's do that now. Flip with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It's on page 542 in the Bibles that we pass out. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. If you were to keep reading, his very next words are, praise be to God. Praise be to God. Those are his next words. 
Now, I need to give you a little bit of a detail because what Paul just did in these two verses indicates something for us about how he's feeling. In fact, I told you that the ancient world had a very specific kind of form for their letters, a a particular standard for their letters. The introduction is one of those standard formulations. Paul follows the standard formulation of letter introductions in almost every one of his letters with a few specific exceptions. One example of it is 1 Corinthians. So I want to share with you the introduction to 1 Corinthians. I'm going to put it up on the screen here. 1 Corinthians, it says, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. It's almost exactly the same as what we just read in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, I'm Paul and some people are with me. I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus, and some people are with me. So first, who's sending the letter? That's the first part. The next part, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. The second thing is who he's writing to. He's writing this letter to the people in Corinth. In fact, this letter is not just to the people in Corinth. It also involves all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus because Paul knows that his letters are probably going to get spread around. But there's something important you need to see. Paul doesn't just say, I'm writing to the church in Corinth. He also tells them a little bit about themselves. He tells them who their real identity is. They're not just a church in Corinth. Their identity is that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. They have been made holy in Christ Jesus. And so Paul focuses on their identity in Christ. Let's keep going. Look at the next one. He then says, grace and peace to you from God our Father. There's the grace word, which is his blessing. And then he says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Thankfulness. This is the standard formulation of Greek letters that Paul follows almost exclusively in his letter writing campaign. I'm Paul and I got some people with me. I'm writing to a church and let me tell you a little bit about yourself. I am going to give you a blessing of God's grace, and then I'm going to thank God for you because you're so special to me. Now, if you kept your finger in it, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Almost the same exact formulation. I'm Paul. I'm with Timothy. Next, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, to the church... And identifying there with other people, the rest of the church is in Achaia, but no statement of identity. Did you see that? He doesn't say anything to the church in Corinth this time about their holiness, about their relationship with Jesus. He just skips it. Then he goes to the blessing, grace, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you would expect the next word to be, I thank God for you. But he doesn't. He doesn't say that. His next words are, I'm praising God. You see, what you need to know is this is a letter Paul doesn't want to write. He's not thankful in this moment. He can't even bring himself to write the words, I thank God for you. He's had problem with the church in Corinth before, but the last time he wrote the letter, he was able to say, I thank God for you. Now, he can't even bring himself to say that. There are very few letters where Paul is so aggressive at getting to the meat of what he needs to talk about that he just skips the thanksgiving. And this is one of those letters. But if you keep reading, 
you now get to see where Paul is coming from in the midst of this. It's obvious he has a relationship problem with the people in Corinth. So now let's figure out how he deals with his relationship problem with the people in Corinth. Take a look at the very next verse. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Do you think he's preoccupied with comfort? He is. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces a new patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Listen, we're going to give you the list of Paul's troubles later on in this study. But today, what you need to know is how Paul thinks about his own hardship. What does Paul think about his hardship? Today I'm going to give you seven things Seven things real quickly that are things for you to carry with you when it comes to hardship. Number one is this. God deserves praise regardless of my situation. I'm going to blow your mind with something absolutely incredible. Do you realize that no matter what happens here on this earth, I'm serious, no matter what happens here on this earth, some tragedy on some part of the world or some tragedy in your life, whatever happens on this earth, guess what? God is still God. Like, how do we miss that? How, how do we forget that? How, how do we lose sight of this thing? God is always God, and the God who created the entire universe is only affected by what happens on this particular blue dot because he loves you. That's his only connection to this place because he loves you. It doesn't affect him. What it does is it makes him compassionate to you. Do you get that? No matter what's going on in my life, God is still God. He still deserves praise. But then, of course, that leads us to the next one. Paul says that God is compassionate and he brings comfort. God is compassionate, and he brings comfort. Our problem is that we feel like somehow trouble is special. Trouble is unique. The average condition for a person who follows God should be comfort, right? We think of life as a Christian as a life that should be comfortable. But God would tell us, no, it's not supposed to be comfortable. In it, you're supposed to receive comfort. 
You're supposed to be comforted. Trouble is normal. And so what we do is because we think ease and comfort should be normal and and that trouble is rare because we live in that world when we experience trouble we doubt God's compassion well if God really cared about me if God were really good if God really loved people he wouldn't let this bad thing happen to people in this world that's our problem our problem is looking at the trouble in this world and thinking that somehow trouble is abnormal trouble is normal Which is easier, for a person to get irritated with you or for a person to forgive you? Which one is easier? That other person is far more likely to get irritated with you and then you're going to get irritated with them back. Trouble is normal. Man, when life works smoothly, that's by the grace of God. Now, our problem is that we doubt God is actually a God of comfort. And some of you might be in that place right now where you would be saying, God, I don't know if I can trust you to be a God of comfort. And I want to reassure you of something. There's absolutely nothing I can say today that will inject that kind of faith into your life. There's nothing I can say up here that will help you feel like you can trust God's promise of comfort. It's impossible. Your doubt about God comforting you is something that you can't get away from because someone else says you should get away from it. I will tell you this though. The Apostle Paul has been through worse than you have. The Apostle Paul has experienced all kinds of things that you and I haven't had. Do you know that the Apostle Paul was killed once with rocks hurled at his head? He was knocked down to the ground and everybody thought he was dead. But for some reason, whether God raised him back up or whether he just wasn't all the way dead yet, people revived him, and he went back into the city with all the people who were just throwing the rocks at his head. That's the kind of dude Paul is. He's a dude who's been flogged like Jesus was, but Jesus only got it once. Paul got it multiple times. Paul's been shipwrecked. He's experienced all kinds of hardship, and guess what he does? He calls God the God of compassion and the God of all comfort. Now, you can doubt God about your problems, but don't you ever doubt God about Paul's problems. Because Paul, the one who's been through much worse than you, believes much better of God. The God of all compassion and all comfort. Then, move on. The next thing he says, he says that God comforts me so that I can comfort others. God comforts me. Verse 4, God comforts me so that I can comfort other people with the same comfort I've received from God. You know, the problem with comfort or pain, it's so amazing. Pain causes us to be selfish. Did you know this? You are wired by God in your body to get selfish when pain happens. I'll give you just a really quick illustration. So there's a stove, and on top of the stove is a glass bowl. A glass bowl that has recently been in the oven, but you don't remember how long ago it was that it was in the oven. And you forgot that that glass bowl was recently in the oven. And so you go up to the glass bowl and you're ready to pick up the glass bowl and put it away. And you touch the glass bowl that has recently been in the oven with your bare hands because you're not that smart and I'm not that smart. We've all done it. You touch that glass bowl and next thing you know, your hands are flying away and you're saying to yourself, what just happened? It's because that glass bowl created some pain in your fingertips. The pain in 
in your fingertips says to the nerves, you're about to die. And the nerve says, oh my goodness. And so the nerve sends a signal to the spinal cord and the spinal cord says, whoa, we're not waiting on the brain to act on this one. We're just going to take care of business now. And the spinal cord sends the reaction back to the muscles that pulls the arm away. And then about 10 seconds later, you're like, oh, that hurts. You see, God wired you up to respond to pain selfishly where your body just reacts, where reaction can happen without even thought. And emotional pain is very similar. And so a lot of times what happens in us is that we experience our pain and then we just take it all selfishly. The pain is selfish. It makes me go inside myself. The comfort is also selfish. God, please comfort me for me. And if you give me any comfort, then I just take that inside myself or we escape or we do all sorts of things to mask it or cover it over. But guess what? The reason the pain is there is so that the God of comfort can give you comfort so that the comfort you receive can be passed on to someone else. Which leads us to the next statement. Suffering is Christian. Look at verse 5. Just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Paul has a very interesting perspective on his suffering. Paul views it this way. I'll I'll try to illustrate it um, graphically. Paul views Christ's suffering as this. Christ experienced infinite suffering. The sufferings of the entire world. And that suffering piles on to Christ. Now, this isn't theologically accurate. Jesus, being God in the flesh, can absorb all the suffering of the world. He can do that. But the metaphor that Paul kind of has in his mind, he never says this explicitly, but kind of is in his mind, is that that suffering is too much for one person. And some of that suffering spills out. And for those people who are closest to him, it lands on them. And Paul would say, I desperately want to be close to Jesus. And so the closer I get to the kind of suffering he experienced, the closer I get to him. Now the truth is that if I experience suffering, I do get closer to him. Because see, my suffering helps me connect with the man on the cross who suffered for me. But guess what? His suffering on the cross allows him to connect with what I'm going through. Because he has suffered for me, and so therefore I know that I am linked with Jesus through pain and hardship. My suffering and his suffering tie us together. Suffering is normal. Suffering is Christian. Jesus had to suffer to walk through the process of death to make it to the moment of resurrection so that you and I could know salvation. See, that's the way the world works. That's the way Christianity works. That's the way following Jesus works. Suffering is intrinsically Christian. Why do bad things happen to me? Because bad things happen to him. It's both directions. Look at the next one. I also want to say that hardship builds reliance. Look at verse 9. Paul says, Indeed, we, feel, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I love it. Paul says, I thought I was about to die. And the reason God let me think I was about to die is because God has the ability to raise the dead. 
And he wanted me to spend just a few moments thinking about him instead of me. See, weakness is the thing in all of our lives that calls us to let someone else in, to let someone else in. I've known a lot of guys who've dealt with uh, addictions of one kind or another, and frequently they won't let anyone else truly speak into their lives until they hit what's called rock bottom, that spot in their life where they have to be confronted with their own weakness, their absolute weakness. And it's in the moment of absolute weakness that you let someone else in. Friends, I'm going to tell you something here. You can enter that weakness right now. But every single moment you experience any sort of hardship, any sort of pain, any sort of frustration, that is a moment for you to look at your heavenly father and say, now, okay, I'm going to let you in. I'm going to rely on you. Because guess what? God has the ability to raise the dead. So whatever happens in my life, God can deliver me. More than that, it's not just that God can deliver. It's that God will deliver. Verse 10, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. Paul says, listen, God has the ability to raise dead people and he has already delivered me from death a number of times. So guess what? The God who has delivered me is the God who will deliver me. I'm facing some hardship now and I don't know how the deliverance will come, but I am definitely sure it will come. God, one of these days is going to deliver me from this hardship. Either he's going to deliver me from this hardship in victory or he's going to deliver me from this hardship through death into resurrection because God raises the dead. And so no matter what this hardship is, I can stand firm in it and say the God who delivered Paul and the God who delivered Abraham and the God who delivered Jesus is the God who's delivered me and will deliver me again. That's the thing. See, when I go through suffering, it pushes me back to reliance on God. And so then... The sixth one, when God delivers, look at the rest of that verse 10, on him we've set our hope as he will continue to deliver us, verse 11, as you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. People will give thanks. Deliverance yields praise. When God moves in a person's life and brings deliverance to that person's life, the people around them praise. Listen, if you're going through hardship and you pray and you ask for God to deliver and then he comes through, there are going to be people in your life and they're going to be like, whoa, I didn't know God still worked like that. And they will say, God is working in your life and you'll be like, you know he's working in my life and praise will rise up. Or there might be someone over here, they don't even believe God is real. I mean, they believe he's kind of real, but he's sort of out there or something. And he doesn't involve himself in people's lives. And you go through hardship, and you pray for deliverance, and God brings some deliverance, that person's going to be like, well, i got to rethink my life. Because God just showed up in your life. And if he showed up in your life, maybe he can show up in my life. And you say, it's because he showed up in Jesus' life. Listen, here's the deal. When God brings deliverance, people praise him. There's just one small problem. Deliverance don't come without hardship. You never make it to victory unless you walk through the battle. It's just the way it works. But I've only given you six things and I'm a pastor, so I have to give you a seventh, right? Isn't that the rule? And so I came up with a seventh one. Uh, The seventh one is kind of a bonus. It's me reading between the lines, but I'll, I'll give it to you this way. Deliverance builds faith. 
And what I mean by that is this. When you're going through hardship, if you're a Christian, I'm 100% convinced that God is going to bring you deliverance, either in this life or the next. I am convinced of that. You might be going through hardship right now, and I'm still convinced about your deliverance. There's just a small problem, though. When God does bring the deliverance, if you didn't engage with the suffering, you're going to think times have just gotten better. You're going to think that, oh my goodness, well, I guess I figured that one out. Oh, well, I can fix my own problems. And your faith won't increase. But if you're going through the time of hardship and you say to yourself, this is God's gift to me in this moment and I will rely on him, I will seek him, I will pray that he brings about his result in my life as a result of this hardship, then when God does bring the deliverance, it's not just that other people praise, it's that you on the other side have greater faith because God has just come through. I know God's going to come through for you no matter what. He's going to bring that deliverance in some way, somehow. But the only way it benefits you directly is if you deal with it while you're in the suffering. It's in the moment of suffering. It's in the moment of hardship. It's in the moment of pain that we set ourselves up for the future moments of glory and praise and faith. So I'm going to give you a couple things to take this lesson home with you. We're going to be covering this basic kind of concept throughout the book of 2 Corinthians because Paul is writing the whole thing from this position of weakness. But I want to give you two things to take home with you. Number one, I want you to be a person who sees your weakness, who sees your hardship, who sees your struggles and your trials, who sees your hardship as your gateway to God. I want you to embrace this. The next time you face difficulty, I want you to literally say to yourself, I will see this hardship as my gateway to God. What do I mean by that? Your hardship puts you deeper in touch with the Jesus who suffered for you. Your hardship helps you relate to his suffering. Your hardship helps you relate to, to the fact that he has suffered for you. And in that moment, you can rely on God for his grace in the moment now and his deliverance in the future. And so it is my gateway to a deeper relationship with God. I'm going to embrace this suffering. I'm going to embrace this hardship as my entrance, my gateway to God. But then finally, I want you to also see your hardship not just as something for you personally in your relationship with God. I want you to see your hardship as a blessing to others. I'm experiencing this pain in part because God's comfort that he will bring to me, I'm sure of it, someone else needs. And so I'm going to experience it first. I'm going to experience this pain and this comfort first because there's someone else coming down the line and they need it more than I do. They need it more than I do because they need it from God plus me. I can get this comfort from God, but that other person needs it from God plus me, and that's why God is letting me go through it now, so that when they go through it then, I will be there for them. My hardship is never just about me, or even for me. 
My hardship is so that I enter into a deeper relationship with God so that the God of all compassion and the God of all comfort can minister into my soul so that one of these days when I encounter that other person who's going through a similar hardship, I can bring that comfort to them. And then they will experience the compassion of God. They will experience the comfort of God. And they will be able able to bring that comfort to someone else. And the comfort of God will spread and the praise of God will spread and the faith of God will spread and people everywhere will know that there is a God in heaven who loves us in the middle of our heart. And it begins with you in the moment of pain. Perhaps you're there now, or perhaps you may someday end up there again. But my hope for you is that in every moment you will rely on God. You will say, This is my gateway to God, and this is my ability to bless others. I'm going to pray for you and then we're going to sing a final song of just declaring the victory of the resurrection over our hardships and troubles. And as I do, as I pray, I want to ask you to simply open yourself up to the God of compassion and the God of all comfort who has promised great deliverance for his people. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message. We believe that God has a full and fulfilling life in store for you and we want to help you live it. For videos, resources, and more, visit us online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com. And as always, we want to encourage you to plug into a Christ-following community of faith wherever you are. Life is a journey, and no one should ever walk alone.